0: Good morning, Your Honors. I'm Catherine Barrett Wick, uh, and I'm a partner at Best & Flanagan. I'm here today with my co-counsel Lisa Bean of Robbins Kaplan, and together we are appellate pro bono counsel for the appellant JMM. Madam Chief Justice, I have reserved 15 minutes for rebuttal. May it please the court. Three and a half years ago, appellant JMM is- initiated a name change proceeding in Hennepin County in order to change the names of her three children so that they would have her last name rather than that of her ex-boyfriend, DG. Because JMM was not married to DG when she gave birth to her children, and because DG has not executed a recognition of parentage or been adjudicated the legal, legal father to JMM's children through any paternity action, JMM is the sole legal parent to her children. There does not seem to be any dispute between uh,
1: appointed counsel and
0: JM. And on counsel, that point.
1: can you tell me if I'm accurate that, um, that JM uh, sought and received a waiver for establishing paternity pursuant to receiving public assistance, and that was based on domestic violence?
0: That is correct, Your Honor, yes, and that continues to be the case. She continues to receive some um, assistance in the form of childcare, uh, and that waiver remains in the family violence waiver, remains valid. Um, so Hennepin County has excused her from seeking um, paternity or any co- uh, contribution because of the serious, incredible threat of violence and control in her past.
2: Council, I just want to take you to the statute, uh, 259.10. Yes. Um, and the question I want to ask you is what your contention is relative to any ambiguity in subdivision one of
0: 259.10. Yes. Uh, we, we agree with the... First Court of Appeals that the term parent or both parents in 259.10 is ambiguous. Uh, There, as the court, the first Court of Appeals found, Black's Law Dictionary has a very broad series of definitions of parent, Um, and we think in this context, it clearly, it is ambiguous, and it would be appropriate for the court to look to the definitions and other statutes and the Parentage Act. How is it ambiguous, though, when
2: the legislature used the phrase both parents
0: um, because there are many instances in which there there are uh, multiple excuse me there are not two parents um, two legal parents I certainly agree with that but but I just I'm having trouble
2: understanding how the phrase both parents can be ambiguous if we look at it as a matter of biology
0: there's nothing in, I think, the very point, um, Madam Chief Justice, is that there's nothing in 25910 to suggest that we need to look at it in terms of biology. So that that reference is not there. Um, that's why it's ambiguous. So it could be looked at in terms of biology, as the First District Court did, and I think as um, Appointed Counsel suggests. Um, but also, it could be looked at in terms of the definition of legal parent, um, which is which is what we have argued. So there's nothing- of course it doesn't say. I mean it just says
2: both parents. That's and correct. To me, I think you could argue pretty strongly that that has to mean biology and only biology. And then you get into the practicability of providing notice if you, if you for example don't know the other side of the biological equation.
0: So one there's a couple problems with that respectfully. Uh, I think that is the position that appointed counsel takes. That would suggest that in the instance where we did know that someone was a biological parent, but that legal rights had been terminated, that that person would be entitled to notice if that is the definition. Similarly, where- Well, but in that situation, the
2: district court could say it's not practicable to provide notice to that person.
0: But you would still be determining that they had rights as a parent when there had been a legal proceeding that said they did not have that right, that- I think is an absurd result. You would also mean if you had either a known, let's say a known donor um, in terms of artificial insemination or through a sperm bank, which again in the parentage act the legislature has said means that does not create a legal father-child relationship. If you use the biological definition in the name change statute, once again you would have another population of individuals who by that definition would be entitled to notice. Again, can't the district court get at that problem, which which I
2: think you're right to point out and highlight. By the, the practicability portion
0: of the statute, I think that puts. I don't think that's the best way of interpreting two fifty nine ten because it creates a definition, it creates a right that is associated with legal parentage and reads that right into the name statute despite. Um, the ambiguity and despite the fact that the legislature has in many other instances been very clear that a biological connection itself does not create legal rights. And we see that in the Parentage Act. We also see that in the Adoption Act, and we see that in the- But then the, we would only look outside. I mean, I mean, it, there, it feels a little boot, like bootstrapping here to
2: me. I mean, we only look to another statute if we find there's ambiguity in this statute. And it seems to me what your argument is doing is looking to other statutes to create an ambiguity in 259.10. I,
0: I don't think so, Your Honor. Let's try this approach. So um, later, Later in 259, um, the legislature, and, and at a later point in time, the legislature used the definition putative father to, um, so this is in 259.21, subdivision 12, putative father. And it's clear that DG meets the definition of putative, putative father because he was not married to JMM and there's been no paternity established. Um, so there we see, we we did not, the legislature at that time did not add, you know, putative parent. It didn't go back and say, we meant, we also want to protect notice rights for this putative class, having defined it expressly. Um, they, they left it alone to parents. So I think that's an important, um, and maybe a closer, something that the, your honor would be closer in looking to, um, in terms of the same chapter.
3: Counsel, um, we looked in the record and didn't find a copy of the, the birth record for these children, birth records for these yep. children. Um, is there any disagreement as to whether the purported biological father's name appears on those birth records?
0: No, there's not. And that those documents are in the district court record um, when the name change proceeding uh, was filed. And I believe they're also in the addendum to the first court of appeals brief. Um, And I I think I have a copy of that first Court of Appeals brief. Could the
3: um, purported biological father have taken steps to make sure that his name was included on the birth record?
0: Absolutely. So he, and I think it's important to look at all the things he did at the moment of the birth of the first two children. So um, he, and there's compelling reasons to view this as part of the controlling and abusive relationship. He even though JMM had taken the forms that were given to her and she had written out that they should, the children, the first two should have her last name, DG uh, made sure that those forms came back and that they were in his mind corrected and that- Uh, um, Council,
3: I'm not disinterested in the facts of this case, but I'm saying as a matter of law, what steps, if any, could the purported biological father have taken to make sure his name was on the birth record?
0: At the moment of birth? Yes. So he could have um, not only put his name to give the children his name, but he could have listed himself on the birth certificate, which he refused to do. It appears that the Wisconsin, based on AJMM's testimony, that the Wisconsin hospitals were doing what we see in Minnesota statutes is recommended that hospitals have a recognition of parentage form on hand and that they offer that. DG was offered um, and given the opportunity to sign a recognition of parentage at the hospital for both um, the first two children. And he declined to do so because he did not want to have any legal responsibility or legal rights relating to the children. He had outstanding child support obligations to uh, multiple other children. Um, think that information actually is in appointed counsel's briefs um, for other children. And he did not want any responsibilities, but he wanted to make sure that, um, that they did not have uh, JMM's last name. So yes, there were multiple ways he could have done it at the moment of birth. And importantly, many ways he could continue to do that. And, and I do want to make that point. Um, this decision and what these children are named has no bearing on whether or not DG has any ability to form a legal parent-child relationship in the future. It doesn't, you know, that's not a requirement. What someone has named someone that one claims is their putative child, it, it is no bar. He continues to be able to, if he wants to assert paternity, he wants to get rights and he wants to have a role, he has every ability to do so regardless of what
4: these children are named. Count, counsel, I'm, I'm curious. Um, I want your help with how the, um, the presumption is supposed to work and... Um, As I understand your brief, a presumption uh, is not synonymous with being a legal parent. A presumption is simply a presumption. Um, Your opponent says, well, but presumed parents are legal parents unless and until um, the operative presumption is rebutted. And it strikes me that that that's typically how we think of presumptions in the law, that, that you are entitled to the, the effect, if you will, of that presumption until the opposing party effectively rebuts that. And subdivision two of, of 257.55 sets out that procedure. So by clear and convincing evidence, um, the presumption can be rebutted in an appropriate action. So I guess I'm, I, I want a little fuller understanding of why that isn't the case, why the presumption doesn't work in the fashion that um, opposing counsel says it does.
0: I think there's a couple aspects to my answer. So one is that I think we, uh, I as, as party counsel, and I think the lower courts have really struggled with this presumption issue. When I look at the statute, and I try to understand best, what is the purpose of this presumption? It appears to really be a stand. It's a, it's a means of getting standing for the purposes of a paternity action. So it's a means of asserting um, that someone could be a rightful party in a paternity action. Uh, it's a means for an interested male to come and say, I you know, I have standing. And, and I, the reason I, I, I see that is if you look at um, sort of how that procedurally plays out, it's under the sections 257.57. who may bring an action when determining a parent and child or father and child relationship. So, I, so the next, I wanna get to the language, I think within that same section under subdivision two, we see in many of the provisions. So these are means through which one could, and this is the key language, for the purpose of declaring the existence of the father and child relationship presumed, which suggests that the presumption is not the legal relationship. It is the... And and where are you? I'm sorry, I lost.
4: Where are you? What's that? So,
0: okay, so it's 257-57. And you see the language I just quoted under subdivision one, two. So it's the phrase, at any time for the purpose of declaring the existence of the father and child relationship presumed. And then there's different steps um, depending upon...
4: So, Which so your point applies. is it's it's through that proceeding in subdivision two one, it looks like, that father has to essentially prove up if for lack of a better word. Is that what you're saying? Yes,
0: it, but it is different if there's an unmarried so if DG is in a different position as an unmarried putative father than a married person. And that's because the presumption. Go ahead.
1: Because they're not married, a mother retains sole legal and physical custody, correct? That's correct. And would you agree with me that there's three categories of paternity, one being alleged, one being presumed, and one being adjudicated? Yes. And would you agree with me that there can be instances that a father may be a presumed father and yet not a biological father? Yes. For example, somebody could be married to someone and get pregnant by a different individual, but that marriage would create a presumption that the husband is the father, even though he is not biologically the father. That is
0: absolutely correct. And that individual, should he be interested, would have standing to participate in a paternity proceeding, even if the putative bio dad, the stranger to the marriage popped up and said, you know, look, I have a test. So the, 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 um, and actually in that instance, it would depend on um, on the time that had elapsed. But if you look at, you know, a, I would say a thread or a concern that we've seen certainly from the Court of Appeals during the second argument and a little bit in appointed counsel's briefs is sort of what about the rights of married dads. And I just, I want to be clear that in many different instances, including how the presumption operates um, in the statute that we were just talking about, um, Justice Hudson, that there is, there's actually a limited time period. If you, if there's a presumed father-child relationship through marriage and someone wants to bring an action to declare the non-existence of the presumption when it's through marriage, there's actually a time bar on that. Um, And it has to happen within three years after the child's birth. And also, if we look at the way that some of the uh, related statutes, the Juvenile Courts Act, um, DG, in the position that he's in, not having executed a rope, not having been adjudicated paternity, he is not entitled to notice of um, a sort of a juvenile courts act or child welfare proceeding, but a putative father who obtained that, the, not a putative, rather, I'm sorry, a presumed father who had the status through marriage, as long as there had not been an action to prove the nonexistence of that relationship, that person would be given notice of the child welfare
5: proceeding. So, What was just, the law that governed this before the Parentage Act was enacted in 1980? And we're talking about an act that was enacted in 1980, but we're trying to interpret an act and yeah. understand what the legislature meant when they enacted it in 1951.
0: The what was the parentage act before or what well, was the a lot of the arguments change. are going
5: to yeah. a lot of the arguments are going to how do we define what a what both parents are which is yep. from 1951 yep. but we're relying on legislation that was enacted 30 years later and more yep. to determine that. So what what were the standards in 1951 about how you determine what a parent is? Uh,
0: well it was highly favored um, so D, DG and D, people in DG's position, um, we see this in Heidebreder. Heidebreder looked at the basically lack of any right or standing of putative fathers. So it was much more out in the cold than we have now. Now we have um, the procedures through the parentage act. So DG
5: act. would have had less rights in 1950s right. than he would in 1980s. That's
0: right. That's okay. my understanding from the statutes and from how Heidebreder also interprets them. I also want to make a point. So because uh, we, Uh, believe that both parents is ambiguous in the context of the name change statute. It's also appropriate to look at prior iterations of that very statute. And if you look at the 1943 version of the name change statute, it uses language about, and and as to a minor, (coughs) excuse me, it uses language that talks about if the, um, if the person subject the name change is a minor, his guardian or next of kin shall also appear. And if the person whose name is to be changed is under age uh, 14, application can be made by guardian or next of kin. This tells us that the legislature was focused on the legal relationships, not, not a p- potential biological relationship.
5: And That language stayed in the statute when the it 1951 changes were made.
0: No, it became both parents. So the I, lang- well, I'm looking
5: at 1951, and it looks like the language about the guardian and next of kin is still in there.
0: Okay,
5: but I see. You, I mean, I don't know that that really is that. I wouldn't spend too much time on your oral argument on that. Okay. Point. So.
1: Right. All right. Um, so, counsel, does the record tell us if um, DG has done anything? Um, such as send cards, letters, and gifts to these children?
0: The record does tell us that he has not done any of those things, that there has been no contact with him since the call after the birth of the third child when JMM informed him that that child had been born. So no,
1: no financial support? No. Not attending any school conferences, correct. doctor's appointments, et cetera?
0: That's correct. Yep, And it's been almost six years. Um, you know, JMM... Um, is an impressive woman. And, and her rights in this situation don't hinge ha- upon whether she's an impressive woman. But she's an impressive woman who has um, come back to Minnesota. She has graduated from college. She's gotten a degree in electrical engineering. She's working as an engineer. Um, and she is, um, you know, supporting her family in every way. And she and her children want to share the same name.
3: Council, the kids were born in Wisconsin, were they not? The first two were. Um, do, and the first two kids, does the question of whether the father putative or alleged father has a biological father has a vested right depend on Wisconsin law or Minnesota law. Let let me while you're thinking about that let me explain what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, If the two first two kids were born in Wisconsin then presumably um, how they're named and whether the father's name appears on the birth record would be a matter of Wisconsin law would it not?
0: I mean, I think certainly at that point in time, correct. If there were subsequent proceedings like a divorce or something in Minnesota, I'm not, I'm not entirely clear whether we would look at how Minnesota law treats the significance of those or whether Wisconsin law would apply. Okay. So I think the legal significance of that, those facts, um, Minnesota law, I think, would apply. I want to answer that in one additional way. So um, looking at the rights of—so the, the named party in Bretter was— in a legally identical place to DG. He was a putative father. He had not, um, well, on day 31, he had filed for the adoption registry. Uh, DG has not for any of these children. Um, And I think the concern, you know, there were issues raised about whether he had a due process right when he was excluded from being able to intervene in the adopting out of what was his putative biological child. And the court actually made the point that um, in finding that it was not a violation of his due process rights to keep him from interfering with that adoption made the point that he could have there was only like four states where he could have thought that the family was and that he, ha- he had the obligation if he wanted to interfere um, with that or preserve his rights that he had to file in the, for the adoption registry in each and every state so dg if he had you know he knows her family 's here um, he he knew that that 's where she was the last time um, they spoke and if he had concerns about preserving that right, he could file for the adoption registry in Wisconsin and Minnesota, and he hasn't done any of those things. I do just want to say a few words on practicability. Um, in this instance, and it may be that Justice McCaig has made the main point that I need to make on this, um, which is just that uh, Hennepin County has deemed that there is a credible serious history of domestic violence here, um, and has excused, Uh, jmm for re-engaging with uh, dg in any way and that is a credible finding which this court should consider and should make clear can be looked at when determining whether notice is practicable Um, and we have a very you know i think a powerful amicus brief uh, on that point so i would just encourage the court to add some clarity to that thank you counsel you have
2: 15 minutes for rebuttal Uh, mr Boulette.
6: Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. Michael Boulette here as appointed counsel by the Minnesota State Bar Association. Your Honors, statute 25910 requires that notice of any name change be given to both parents where practicable. Appointed counsel asks this
1: can I ask you a question before you get started? Do you find it, um, I guess, do you find it odd or having any um, impact that... We're here not because DG has asked us to be here. We're here because the district court has determined that a single mother who has sole legal and sole physical custody has to get or give notice to an individual who is not even taking part in these proceedings. Do you think that that should have any impact on the court's decision?
6: No, Your Honor. I think it has no impact. Why not? I think it has no impact because the question goes to a basic right to notice, which the legislature has required in all name change actions. Which
1: would be his right, correct?
6: Which would be both parents' right to notice. But
1: in this instance, he's the one who's not
6: partaking. And he has no way of knowing that, and so does the district court's... Well, we don't know that he has no way of knowing that. It's the district court's solemn role to protect notice rights for a party who otherwise is not informed of a proceeding. I think that is well within and appropriately the purview of a district court where statute mandates notice to two parties to exercise that responsibility to ensure that if notice isn't being provided, the statute provides some reason why it oughtn't
3: counsel we we typically give notice and it's part of due process correct when someone has a vested right that is going could be taken away yes all right. what is the um, purported biological father's vested right here? his name. Do you agree his name does not appear on the birth record?
6: I agree that's the record below, yes.
3: So what what vested right does he have in whether these kids have last name X or last name Y?
6: I want to answer that question in two ways. First, I want to be very cautious about terms. DG is not a purported biological father. DG is a biological father, as acknowledged in the record below. No one disputes he's the biological father. Secondly, he's not purported, he's presumed, as found by the district. That's not exactly
1: true, because he's not been adjudicated by any court. He's been presumed to be, or stated by the district court, that there is a presumption. But that does not adjudicate him and give him any rights, other than that he may have the right to notice to participate in the proceedings. But the court didn't adjudicate him as the
6: father. And I'm not suggesting the court did, Justice McKay. I'm simply saying he's not a purported or putative biological father. Every party in this action acknowledges he is the biological
3: father. Let me amend my question, then. We won't refer to him as anything but D.G. What, what vested right does D.G. have in the, whether the last name of the kids is X or Y? The constitutional
6: liberty interest in the custody and management of his children, Your Honor, which stems directly from the Minnesota Supreme Court's president in Stanley, in Lair, in Quillian, in Caban, which was recognized by this court in Heidebretter, that when a biological father participates in the lives of his children, that participation coupled with his biology gives him a vested constitutional right in their upbringing. Whether or not he's ever been adjudicated, whether or not he benefits from a presumption, that those two things together, biology plus care and participation, entitle him to a constitutional role in his children's lives, and we see that recognized in the case law in others from other states.
3: So the fact, in your judgment, as, as a matter of law, it is irrelevant that father's name does not appear on the birth record, the, DG's name does not appear on the birth record, and notwithstanding that, he's still entitled to notice Completely if, if, irrelevant. The, na- if the name is to be changed.
6: Completely okay. irrelevant. Counsel, does
1: that have also then the impact of putting any obligations or responsibilities on DG? Because DG is entitled to a jury trial right on the issue of paternity.
6: He isn't, let, let me answer your last question, which is he would be entitled to a jury trial under Minnesota law if paternity was to be adjudicated, yes.
1: And we do that because there's lots of obligations that go along with being an adjudicated father.
6: I don't know enough about the history of Minnesota's jury trial requirement to say that that is why we do that. No, Your Honor.
1: But he is, has to have those rights explained to him and waive those, correct?
6: I, you know, Justice King, I, I'm trying to understand the question. Yes, if DG was adjudicated as a, fa- as a legal father, additional obligations would flow from that. He is no less a father for not having been adjudicated.
1: Well, I disagree with that, but- Well, well and, and
6: I think this is a very important point because the, the, the emphasis on adjudication has very real and very dangerous implications for this court and ones which counsel takes very personally. I am not an adjudicated father. I am a presumed father. Any man in this courtroom who has children through a marriage, is not an adjudicated father. He is a presumed father. And it is on the sole strength of that presumption that parental rights flow. There is absolutely nothing in the law that requires adjudication to become a parent. It is precisely because a presumption exists under the Parentage Act.
1: Counsel, isn't it accurate that the law has changed in such that fathers who sign birth certificates at the hospital are now deemed adjudicated?
6: No. Your, your husband, hey, that's not true. That is fathers true. who sign recognitions of parentage at the hospital are deemed adjudicated, but married fathers may not sign recognitions of parentage. Married fathers may not sign declarations of parentage. Married fathers sole access to legal standing as What's a parent... What's the case
1: law that says that they can't sign those?
6: What does are you says, the where, where in the
1: statute does it say that? To,
6: in, in 257.75 it makes a recognition of parentage available solely to an unmarried parent. The only way a married parent may use a recognition of parentage is if they're acknowledging the parentage of someone not the husband. Similar, a similar standard applies in, I believe it's 257.3.4, on declarations of parentage, which admittedly are far less used. If I could return, though, to, to my central premise, it's, this is precisely the reason that employing Minnesota's parent Act on such a limited ex parte record is so dangerous where the language of the statute doesn't require it. To Justice Gildea's point, we don't need to turn to the Parentage Act unless the language in the statute is ambiguous as to this situation. It is not ambiguous as to this situation. DG is the acknowledged biological father of M and D. DG lived with these children, contributed his paycheck to support these children, found them housing, did all the things we expect of a parent under the dictionary definition of that term. He contributed his genes, he contributed his care and support for a period of years. That by itself provides a plain language definition for this court to say at a minimum, at a minimum, whatever else 259.10 may mean by parent, it absolutely means a natural father who's participated in the lives of his children. That allows this court to make, to make a reasonable, plain language, common sense holding. Counsel, what about the fact
1: that he has never introduced these children as his children, in fact, has only introduced them by their
6: name to the community? I think we have to be careful, first of all, Justice McKay, because this is an ex parte record. So this is one party's recollections of events that happened several years ago. DG may well offer a different story if he'd had the opportunity. He didn't. As to the significance but DG, of DG,
1: there is nothing precluding DG from actually establishing paternity or um, attempting to get joint custody or filing a motion in family court or being involved in his children's lives so that he knows that there's this action going on. I mean, there's nothing that is preventing him from doing that, correct? Respectfully, we
6: don't know that, and we have no way to know that. It, it may well be that he... No, is I'm asking you legally.
1: There is nothing legally preventing him from pursuing those avenues.
6: Legally, nothing of which I am aware, but again, DG is not my client. I don't know DG. I've had no opportunity to consult with him. But practically, what I know about DG from this limited record is that he is severely impoverished. What I know about him is that he seems to struggle with a basic understanding of the court system. This is not a man of means and sophistication who could simply ring up your nearest family law attorney and ask them to bring an action. He may have no ability to access even legal aid resources. He may have no real knowledge of how to do any of the practical things he would need to do. So when we say there's nothing preventing him, I think we need to be cautious. There may be many things preventing him.
3: Counsel, let's, let's assume a hypothetical case. Um, a case in which a couple is not married. There is no court order regarding the child's last name. There's no recognition of parentage executed and there's no request by the par- both parents. Uh, both, both biological parents for a particular name in that instance does the mother have the absolute right to n-
6: to choose the last name of the child is this in the first instance your honor or as a matter in, of a name the, in the first instance in the first instance absolutely in the first instance this court had made clear neither parent has a superior right to naming and under your hypothetical mother would have sole legal custody and sole physical custody under the statute so she would have the sole right to pick the initial name, that's true. Okay,
3: so if, if the biological father does not, in those circumstances, have a vested right to pick the name or uh, withhold consent to the last name, then why, what vested right accrues later on in connection with a name change, and when did
6: that vested right accrue? I want to be cautious about the answer to your question, because it assumes that there needs to be a vested right, Statute's chosen to bestow this entitlement upon both parents, seemingly vesting the right by itself. That the Minnesota legislature has decided that in any, that A, name change should require an action and district court approval, and B, that both parents are entitled to that notice. Statute does so without any specific reference to either parent needing to have a vested right in the children, in order, to make that, in order to make that change. And in fact, the court's case law in Robinson at least hints at this obliquely, that a natural father has an interest in his children bearing his last name such that he needs to be able to participate and offer information when a petition is brought to change that name. I think, Justice Lillahug, there is something inchoate in your question, too, that deserves notice, which is Minnesota's name change statute is by no means the only way we could imagine doing this. One could easily imagine a world in which legal custodians can just change their children's names. And they can do it when they want and how they want and whatever, in whatever way they want. Well,
3: the statute does say you need to get a court order.
6: Exactly. And and my point being that Minnesota's elected to not go down that path. Right. Minnesota's elected to say that name changes do not fall within the purview of a legal custodian or guardian. They require district court approval. And in order for the district court to make an informed, reasonable, best interest now, within decision— within the
3: unfettered discretion of the guardian, the, the uh, single parent or guardian,
6: you, there, there's a check on, on that discretion, and that's a court. And, and I would say that there isn't any discretion in the guardian, Your Honor, that, that your case law in Robinson says this is the district court's decision to make— based on a review of best interest, and in fact, the guardian bears a burden to show by clear and convincing evidence that the name change will be in this child's best interest. I I think it's a mistake to even think of this as a right of a parent, as a parent has standing to petition for this request, but it's truly the district court who's allowed to make the decision. Now, again, is that the only way we could imagine the policy being made? No, but it is Minnesota's policy to say name changes, as opposed to names in the first instance, need to be made through a judicial process.
5: Where, where do you, uh, what's the basis for the biology plus care of kids standard? Is that a, the, based on kind of this constitutional standard, or is it a, based on something else?
6: You're understanding me exactly, Justice Thiessen. I, I suspect that a plain language reading of the statute, potentially supplemented by reading it in pari materia with the Adoption Act, would get the court to a place of, it's biology. And it only needs to be biology. Well, and that's what my question is. You added this and took care of the kids piece. That, and I've, that- I've added that because the court in this case doesn't need to go that far to simply say it's biology and only biology. And the addition of participation, that additional quorum, is what saves the statute from any constitutional infirmity, which you picked up on precisely. Because ZG is a biological parent who's participated in care that right becomes elevated on a constitutional level, such, as, such, such that if we do not recognize him as a parent, we are actually reading a constitutional infirmity into a statute that need not have any. If we simply adopt a plain language approach though, even a plain language approach informed by the Adoption Act, it may well be that biological parenthood is enough to receive notice under the language the legislature's chosen to give us. I think that counsel has raised excellent points as to why that may be a silly policy. It may be that we want that the legislature should have said it's adjudicated parents, or the legislature should have said it's parents who have taken an active, involved, and ongoing role. But the legislature hasn't said that. The legislature said both parents. And as it used that term in 1951, and as it continues to use that term under a plain language meaning of the word, parent is primarily based in biology, particularly when we have the modifier both giving us additional information. I do want to spend a little bit of time on... And so
1: what about a hypothetical where the couple is married and they divorce, um, and the child is actually not the biological child of the husband. It's the biological child of someone else who has never taken part in the proceedings, um, and the husband has not, ever, has not sought a non-paternity action, so he's not sought a finding for non-paternity, um, they divorce, they get joint legal and joint physical custody. He is deemed to be the father, even though biologically he is not the father, correct?
6: Correct. He is a presumptive father under the Minnesota Parent Act. yes.
1: Right, but if if they divorce and the court grants him joint legal, joint physical custody, he, he is not the biological father. There's, he, so when you say that it all, all relies on biology, that's not necessarily true.
6: Under the parentage act, that's correct, Justin St. Keg, but I'm not talking about the parentage act. You're construing 25910, And 259-10 was enacted before we had a parentage act. It was enacted when we really had two classes of parents, natural parents and adoptive parents. And natural parents were, for all intents and purposes, biological parents, even biological parents that weren't particularly nice people, or biological parents who had ignored their children and remained un- uninvolved in their lives. Those people are still parents, and...
5: The I guess the, the, the question I mean, that is coming out of this for me is in that circumstance, is it more than both parents then? Is it three parents that need to get
6: notice? I think, I think one of the... The point that that highlights, Justice Thiessen, is is the point that in this case, there isn't ambiguity in this statute. In right. this case, there is, right, in that in, case, there may well be ambiguity in the statute. In which case, the court might do well. But if we make a decision that it's going to be ba- that
5: we're defining both parents as biological parents, then, and you both only means two. Right, then you exclude the married parent to Justice McKiggs in the next case. And we have to not just think about this case, we have to think about the next case. So what do we do with
6: that? Agreed, and I think when you think about the next case, it's important to understand that ambiguity is always going to be case-specific. I seem to recall a decision from this court outside my area of practice, but where you had to determine whether a BB gun was a firearm. Well, yes, that presents a real ambiguity for this court. It's difficult, but it's not difficult to say that an AK-47 is a firearm. So. The court may have to say that biological parents are included within the classification of both parents. I'm not suggesting, in a, it's not a point of counsel position, that the court should make that coextensive with every possible definition of parent. It may be that there are other cases with other parties in which parent may take may take on ambiguity that it doesn't have here. In and so this,
7: what do you do with um, opposing counsel's argument about... Um, uh, the potential physical danger to uh, the mother here and the actions of Hennepin County in uh, exempting um, the mother from pursuing child support for those reasons.
6: I think you have to do with it precisely what the district court did here, which is to take it extremely seriously, to weigh the facts carefully as presented to you, and then to make make a balancing decision about are the dangers of safety so great here as to render notice impracticable. The district court here, in fact, emphasized, used its discretion precisely as advocated by Amiki. It said, I accept there may be circumstances where notice would be so dangerous that it shouldn't be given. I find under these facts and these circumstances that it doesn't rise to that level. With all due respect to JMM and her sincerely held beliefs, that was the district court's job, is to weigh those facts as it found them. It cannot be that every allegation that abuse occurred rises to the level of notice being waived. The court has to weigh those allegations on a case-by-case basis, as it did here, and say, these are the instances in which the danger is so great, so extreme, as to become impracticable. And these are the cases in which I find that there may be some danger, but it is not so great as to rise to the level of impracticability. I think the district court's decision provides an excellent example of a balancing act, and albeit a difficult one, and an exercise that needs to be taken seriously, but an appropriate exercise of that discretion that Hennepin County reached a different decision doesn't, shouldn't surprise us. For one reason, Hennepin County has a different process, different information, and is a different decision maker. For, two, for um, secondly, Hennepin County has a different interest here. Hennepin County's interest is fiscal. If they don't pursue DG, they're out a little bit of money that they would otherwise have recouped from him for the payment of public benefits. DG's interest here has the potential to rise to a constitutional level which the district court took notice of and acknowledged. And so it's understandable that the amount, that the weight given to an allegation of violence or an allegation of danger would be different in an action that simply involves reimbursing the public fisc from an action that involves constitutional rights to children.
3: Counsel, let's say the biological father is a sperm donor. Yes. I realize there's a separate statute, but I'm asking you conceptually, under this this statute, 259.10, Does both parents mean that the sperm donor is entitled to be given notice? Potentially, yes.
6: You'd have a practicability question, Justice Little Haug, of do we know who the sperm donor is? Is this a sperm donor in the sense of do-it-yourself? So do we need
3: to subpoena the sperm bank and find out who
6: it is before um, any... before? notice may be given? If practicability can encompass situations as broad as domestic violence, as appellant argues, as the district court assumed. Yeah, but I'm asking, I'm
3: asking what your position is. I mean.
6: My position is that the district court acted within its discretion in how it exercised its interpretation of practicability. And my position is that practicability can absolutely assume the undue burden of figuring out who this person is. If we have no way of knowing who the father is. If the, father's ident- if the biological father's identity stems from a sperm bank, it may well be impracticable. Now, that's, but that will be a fact question for the district court. It's not likely to be amenable to a rule of law here today.
3: Biological father, um, say, in a different country um, from 16 years ago, that person would be entitled
6: to notice because he's the biological father? That person could well be entitled to notice, and the question would be whether it's practicable. Before we end, there is this overlying question of practicability that, that really does need to be considered. And appointed counsel takes seriously the allegations of domestic abuse and the need to treat it very seriously. There isn't much daylight, frankly, between appointed counsel, appellant, and Amiki that domestic abuse is a serious societal concern that has to be treated with the utmost respect. But respectfully, that is what happened here. The facts as found by the district court, based solely on testimony from one party, provide an appropriate framework for the district court to conclude that notice didn't rise to the level of being impractical. There was
0: Did the court say about the death
6: threats, though? I mean, that's very disturbing to me. The death threats are disturbing. I think the, the district court put the death threats in context with the remainder of the actions that were testified to. So the death threats are absolutely disturbing. The death threats occurred, would have occurred at this point several years ago. They were actually conditioned on, if you ever leave me, I will do this. JMM left. DG apparently knew where she was. There was no additional contact. There were no additional threats. So the district court looked at the facts in front of it and said how much danger do I see here in light of no allegations of actual physical violence by anyone ever. so And I think that that point resonated with the district. DG did make threats. Those threats were supremely gross. However... There wasn't an actual history of physical violence in this case, which the district court note of. The threats that occurred quite some time ago, they'd never been made good upon, and they were conditioned upon behavior not related to the action here. I think that all of those circumstances were appropriately weighed in giving meaning to whether or not notice is practicable. We don't mean to suggest that practicability could never include consideration of someone's safety. A statute that says that you know, you will adhere to that. You will drive on the right side of the road so far as practicable, likely includes some consideration of if you will hurt yourself by driving on the right side, you don't need to. However... Because,
1: so you you would agree that domestic violence encompasses much more than a physical act, right?
6: Are you asking my legal opinion, Justice McKay, or are you asking my sociological opinion?
1: Whichever you like to provide. Well, my
6: legal opinion is that this, these, the actions by DG, while reprehensible, probably aren't Domestic abuse within the definition of 518b01.
1: And what do you base that on?
6: I base that on the fact that as I read the definition of domestic abuse, this DG's actions would only constitute domestic abuse if they placed her in imminent, if they placed JMM in imminent fear of physical danger.
1: Have you read the recent case from this court that helped define imminent?
6: Your Honor, know, when I read, I believe Thompson versus Shrimpser. That
1: is what I'm referring to.
6: When I read that case, I understood it to mean that imminence doesn't adhere to the initial definition of domestic abuse, which is physical violence. Physical violence need not be imminent, it's physical violence. Threats of violence do need, do have an imminence requirement written into the statute. And so I don't have enough information, but I think that there's good reason to suggest that the threats of future harm made several years ago that never come into being aren't the sorts of threats of imminent physical harm that are included within the definition of 518B01. It's not to say that those actions aren't reprehensible, and it's not to say that they're not significant. It is to say that they have to be weighed in the context of practicability in a way committed to the discretion of a district court. And this is not a district court that was unmindful of domestic abuse. This is not a district court that disregarded JMM's concerns and shuffled her off to the side. It accepted her affidavits. It gave her two different opportunities to testify on two different days. It allowed her own counsel to elicit testimony. And it heard a balancing act, a careful balancing act, between the legitimate safety concerns of a party and the very real demand that a father be provided notice before his children lose his surname. And it made that balancing act, as district courts do, based on its assessment of weight and credibility of the evidence. There's nothing here that suggests that that was an abuse of discretion simply because a different fact finder with a different statutory standard in Hennepin County reached a different result.
2: Thank you, counsel. Ms. barrett you have 15 minutes.
0: I want to begin um, by contesting a point that appointed counsel made that everyone agrees that DG is the biological father. And I want to answer that and explain that we do not agree to that because in the statutes, including the parentage act there, that is a legal definition. Okay. So, and that is, that is really is what is at the heart. Does the fact that, um, that she believes he's the genetic father, does that rise to the legal significance of biological father as defined by the Parentage Act?
2: Okay, let me just make sure I understand that nuance. Does mother concede that DG is the uh, father of the children as a matter of biology?
0: As a matter of genetics? I'm just using that term. Is there a difference between genetics and biology? The reason I think the answer is yes is because the recognition, the, st- the portion of the Parentage Act that talks about how an unmarried putative father establishes um, the status of biological parent is through ex- executing, excuse me, a recognition of parentage. So I think it is different. Um, that, is, that is one of the means by, or to have adju- uh, paternity adjudicated. But, well, as a matter of genes, <laughs> yeah. does your client mother concede
2: that D.G. is the father as a matter of genes?
0: Yes, she does believe that to be true.
2: And yes. all three of the children have D.G.'s last name? Am I right about that, or is it just the first two?
0: No, they all do. Okay. Yeah. Justice Teason, sorry. Okay. I, mean, I
2: just, I, you know, at bottom, what's troubling about this case to me is these children have D.G.'s last name, and... As we just went through, mom concedes in a matter of genes Mm -hmm. that DG is the father. Mm -hmm. So why not give him notice unless there's a practicability
0: determination to the contrary? Because, so I have a couple answers. So the first I wanna go back um, to the point that Justice Thiessen made. At the moment of birth, he had no right to to, to insist that that they have that name and she was denied the right allowed to her under law to give them the name that she wants because of the abusive and controlling relationship. And that was an act that does, I think that, that that is an aspect of the district court's most, the most recent district court's analysis that suggests it doesn't understand the significance and the sophistication of domestic abuse to read that act, not as an act of, you know, kind of love and ownership, but as an act of alienating JMM from her own, the the, the child that came out of her body, he says, that's not yours, that's mine. And to, to read that in a way that's devoid of the power and control of that, when we have the evidence in the record that he refused to allow her to contact her family and, and talked about his family, the people with the G's versus the M's, that was an act of othering her from her children.
2: And your argument is the conclusion of the district court was clearly erroneous.
0: Absolutely, yeah. but I, but I want to go back to the point and I, and I hope this provides a, an additional better answer um, to your question earlier, uh, your concern about reading, and this is Madam Chief Justice, that reading um, both parents as biological. So um, that would also exclude adoptive parents, where we know who the bio, you know, when there's a known adoption and we know where we, it was like an, an open adoption because the practicability well, as, doesn't. As
2: respondents' counsel points out, I mean, ambiguity is determined based on the situation in each case. The statute may not be ambiguous here because mom concedes as a matter of genes, DG is the father. In the next case, it might be ambiguous because of an adoptive parent or something else.
0: I don't know, it may exist and I may may be ignorant to it. I don't know the point of law to to, to cite for that proposition. It seems to me that if a term is ambiguous, (laughs) that if a term means something different and could be ambiguous in certain circumstances and isn't in others, that that's proof of its ambiguity. I, I, I guess i 'm struggling to anyways. well, we do look at ambiguity as applied yeah as applied to the yeah. facts here that's true, yeah yeah
2: counsel so,
7: you know the, here's something that bothers me, and I want to be careful how I phrase this question because yeah. my reading of the record is the same as yours regarding the mother of this of these children that uh, she has done a remarkable um, it, it, she is in all respects a, a remarkable individual but I want to posit a set of circumstances where that is not the case I want to be clear that, that, it, that we're dealing with a hypothetical here and my hypothetical is a situation where the children are removed uh, by a mother mother goes to a different state mother makes all the allegations that have been made here they're not true but makes all these allegations um, and the court and using the theories that you have just uh, adopted, the court says, looking at the statute, I'm not, we're not going to give uh, any notice to the other parent, even though the statute plainly requires it. And what I'm asking you about is, how do you deal with those kinds of circumstances? And we know they occur, because within recent memory, we had, uh, although they were older children, we had a fairly high visibility case um, you know, involving children who were removed by a parent. Uh, and for those of us who have some background in family law work these things happen not not often but too often and what do we do about it
0: so i think the best answer to that is that the no, not getting notice of the name change hearing for that in that hypo doesn't preclude that i guess more sympathetic putative father from Filing a paternity action from searching the court records to see you know where that person is, and then adjudicating rights in, in, the legislature said he's ins-
7: entitled to notice the legislature said both parents are entitled to notice there's nothing in in two fifty seven ten that says with the you know it does talk about practicable, but there's nothing there um, that that sets out any exceptions, and so why isn't the default position be, uh, that Notice is given.
0: Because it would give DG rights that he doesn't have under any other, it gives him a parental, a parental right that he does not have as a matter of law in Minnesota. And that is, that is just, it is absurd to think that he wouldn't have rights, as Hydebrider shows, to prevent an adoption. Um, he wouldn't have rights in, an, in a child welfare proceeding that could perhaps, you know, also result in adoption out, but he has rights to notice of a name change hearing. Council,
3: think- I want to follow up on that idea in response to opposing counsel's argument. Um, at the time the birth record was filled out, did DG have any legal right to choose the name of the child or have his name on the birth record in the, in the absence of taking steps to do so?
0: If he had not, until, if he, if he executed a recognition of parentage, then I think he would.
3: But in the circumstances of this case, did he have any rights either to his name on the birth record or to name the child? No. So what do you make of counsel's opposing, opposing counsel's argument that 259.10 creates a right that was not present at the time of birth?
0: I, I think that, that is an absurd interpretation of 259.10 and not one that the legislature could have intended. And
3: and on the question whether the statute is ambiguous, it says both parents. Does it specify whether it means both legal parents, both biological parents, or both legal and biological and adoptive parents?
0: No, and that I think that is the exact analysis that um, the first Court of Appeals opinion walked through when it did carefully consider whether the modifier both um, created clarity and found that no, um, it did not, and that, that that term both the paired term and the term "parent" was ambiguous. Uh, th- there are some. We additions- understand,
2: though, how that can be because we can have many situations where there's only one legal parent or one adoptive parent. But as a matter of biology, there are always only going to be two. I mean, maybe now. there's some science <laughs> that I don't right. I'm not aware of, but just as a matter of biology, there are always only going to be two parents.
0: I think, under a modern scientific landscape, that is true, but i that still requires adding the modifier of biology when it is not that's not in the statute and in Justice McCaig's example, where you had a child born during a marriage, and the marital father we later learn was not the genetic father um but has you know, no one has contested his legal parentage. He's entitled to that presumption. And at the time of divorce, that means he gets legal custody. In that instance, if we interpret the statute to both parents to mean biological, the legal father doesn't have to get notice, And the non-legal putative biological father does. And similarly, you know, if, if, if you have a known sperm donor who, you know, which is a common way that families are made these days, all kinds of families, even if... All parties to that transaction look at the law and see that the legislature has said when there's there's a child born not in marriage and if there hasn't been a rope or there hasn't been any of these other steps taken that that the mother is the sole legal custodian and everyone relies on that, that also if we interpret the name change statute the way that appointed counsel wants and the way that the court did below, um, that would completely mess the expectations up of all of the parties. So
3: let's say you have a same-sex marriage couple, they're both male, and they use a surrogate mother to deliver the child, Um, what what would be the result in that case then, if if both parents meant both biological parents? You'd have to notify the surrogate mother uh, 16 years later.
0: I think, I think under the appointed counsel's interpretation, you would have to notify the surrogate, even if the surrogate, even through contractual means, the, the individuals had um, made clear that that person had no legal rights and that. Even, other if, even if the
3: same, if the, the male couple, married male couple, both, they both decided the child's name should be changed, maybe right. to reflect their own relationship. You'd still by. If you interpret both parents to mean biologically,
5: you'd have to notify the surrogate mother. I think you would. Do do we, does the meaning that the 1951 legislature had in saying both parents change over time? Or does what, when we're looking at legislative intent, do we look at the legislature that actually enacted the law?
0: I think, I think given that there have been subsequent um, amendments to both that chapter and many other chapters relating to legal parenting rights, we have to look at it as um, we have to recognize that the legislature knew it was further and more modernly defining parent, and it didn't go back and change to make clear that it didn't have, you know, that it met some earlier, um, definition. So I, I looked for this principle. I found, and, and I don't have the site for it, but I could provide it, an Idaho Supreme Court case that recognized that principle. And I can't. I was not able to find anything in Minnesota statutory interpretation on that. But I think that remains a valid. Um, and we. I think I put that in the reply brief. That that idea that the legislature understands that it. It's fair for the court to understand that the legislature in many other instances, including the parentage act most substantially, and then also later in '59, um, that it updated and expanded the definition of parent and left alone um, that term earlier. And it's fair to assume that that's the intent that the legislature had.
3: Counsel, uh, opposing counsel made the argument that um, even though the biological father was not on the birth, the birth record, Um, that he's got some kind of constitutional right to be involved in the care of his biological children. What's your response to that argument?
0: I'm glad you brought me back to that, Justice, because that was sort of my last important point to make. So Heidreiter says no. I mean, Heidreiter just says no. That's not the case. When you... Have a putative father who has not done those legal things, so we 're really looking at facts that are sort of the legal proceedings that a putative father could do um, that that is just not the case. this person d g is uh, materially indistinguishable in terms of those legal factors as hybridder and well, that 's an adoption case and that 's an adoption case that is a permanent end. Alienated forever from a legal standpoint, and this is not. This is a name change statute, name change proceeding. We hope that that is completely reversible and closes no doors to that um, parent-child relationship being um, established. And and I think. I agree with the methodology that appointed counsel uses that there was a weighing, and I think that's the proper weighing that the district court engaged in, in, in the practicability to look at the uh, credible threats of violence and the history of control and abuse um, and look at the legal interests. But as a matter of law, given Hydebredder, she put far too much weight on DG's interests in this situation because Hydebredder says he has, low to to non-existent allele interest in this situation. Um, I'm happy to be done if there's no further questions. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Uh,
2: uh, Thanks to all counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this matter, and thanks to the amicus as well. And I wanna thank the MSBA for taking on the role as appointed counsel here. Uh, This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course.